in the morning. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. Whoa! So this is Radio Land, huh? The Infinite Turtle, the the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever. Roar! This is Death by DVD Does Masters of Horror Season 1. You are listening to Harry Scott Sullivan, and with me, I'm excited to have them here. We have Kevin Matthews from Raiders of the Podcast, which is a grade-A show, and if you're not listening to it, what the hell are you even doing? Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we could schedule this time together about this wonderful choice that you have made for this episode as I thank you for being here, I will also extend my deepest apologies because of the subject matter of this episode. As the audience probably knows already, we have decided to tackle one by one Mick Garris's legendary Masters of Horror series, and that brings us to episode two, The Dreams in the Witch House by Stuart Gordon, by H.P. Lovecraft, originally, I believe, July 1933 edition of Weird Tales magazine brings us this. And 2005 brings us the Stuart Gordon translation, which I'll, right off the bat, sigh over prolongedly. Because it's, I don't want to chase the audience away with, this sucks, but man, this is not the best episode of Masters of Horror. No, no. And um, I say that reluctantly as a huge Stuart Gordon fan. And uh, how do you pronounce his surname? Dennis Powley, who helped uh, create this again. Who worked with Gordon numerous times including uh reanimator and i think i think dagon as well or dagon yes it absolutely is and uh richard band did the music so you've got a, a nice reunion of somewhat classic people from Stuart gordon's career I, i'm a little upset that none of his actors came back for this that we don't get any sights uh i would love when he uses george went which what he only did that one time but still <laughs> it would have been nice I didn't realize his relationship with George went until I was fortunate enough to see the stage version of Reanimator the Musical, and George went was in that, and it was a revelation. And then I knew they'd had that relationship for such a long time. So I forgot he was in uh, King of the Ants. A King of the Ants, and then him and William H. Macy also have a great career that they all were members of the Organic Theater that Gordon had founded or maybe co-founded. I believe he founded it back in the 1960s and 1970s before becoming, I would say, a true master of horror. It's a little debatable if everyone on the 13 list of directors for this program is in fact a master, but Stuart Gordon certainly is. And that was one of the biggest reasons I wanted to have you on this episode, that you recently have shared an awesome article that well, articles and interview rather that you did with Stuart Gordon and that you got to spend several hours with him and hang out. You also have a great video on the subject matter. And I thought there would be no one else better to help tackle this shit storm. <laughs> and I also just to stress to the audience, Raiders of the podcast, not Raiders of the lost podcast, please be certain to find Raiders of the podcast, follow them, like share, sharing is caring and it always helps, but it is a great a show. Yeah, and if anyone is ever after our back catalogue and struggling, 
then we can always point them in the right direction. We're out there everywhere, mysteriously. So I guess we have to open up this pit, unfortunately. Uh, and its I don't want to be all doom and gloom, because I like the story that this is based on. I guess when it comes to Lovecraft stories, this one really has more shape than anything else. You actually get to experience what the evil is, and you don't have a lot of it. It's a nameless, strange terror. You've got a, a rat with a man's face on it. You've got a witch, and that's about it. It's pretty basic. you got some nameless, beautiful colors and the typical Lovecraftian nondescript but overwhelmingly descriptive style and it it works. It's a great short story, especially for something written in the 1930s. It's sort of an archetype of absolute fear. It's it's looking at Stephen King and uh, Clive Barker and their flow in the 70s and 80s. You can see with something like Dreams in the Witch House where they come from as writers. But the Stuart Gordon version kind of skips everything that makes the story rather frightening and intriguing and is a very compartmentalized, kind of nouveau hip version of it. And I just, I don't want to say I don't like it because there's a lot that I can appreciate from what we get and the fact that it's Stuart Gordon. But I would rank it at probably the bottom of Stuart Gordon's discog discography, filmography. I don't know words. I don't have such a bad grasp of this language. I just have to agree with you that this is, if it's not at the bottom, it's very close, but I can't think of anything worse. Uh, although slightly different from yourself, I don't think I was that much of a fan of the story either. It's not bad. But I do like the Lovecraftian tales of indescribable horrors. I like the joke of Lovecraft telling tales and people asking, so what was it like? Oh, I just can't describe it. You'll go mad. Um, they're always fun. Uh, but yeah, I, I've i never thought this would make a good adaptation to the screen. And we've had this and then the Cabinet of Curiosities version. So both adaptations that I've seen can you prove that it's it's not the best one for that I think I feel like it probably all gravitated toward there's a rat man and I, I just feel that's kind of the Stuart Gordon-y thing of him flipping through books and that that's maybe one of my biggest disappointments is we've got all these really terrific horror directors legendary masters it sucks that they're pigeonholed into sort of what they're known for with this series. As to where Stuart Gordon hadn't done a Lovecraft tale, I think it might have ended up being far more successful. And I just imagine him flipping through a tome, just, all right, I've not done this one, not done this one. We guess we could, Ratman's in this one, let's do it. And just slapping it down because it is a little bit shorter. I already said it was disappointing. But it seems very frazzled, and it's a disconnected telling of the story. that the We, we start in the same similar fashion, and to tell the audience what it's about, we've got a, a guy that's going to Miskatonic University studying, and he's boarding at a witch house. It's a legendary house that everyone in town is afraid of. Long story short, there's a witch in the house, and her familiar is a rat man. It's a little tiny rat man. In the, the novel, it's apparently quite novel. In the short story, it's apparently quite big. In Stuart Gordon's version, it's just a guy's face with, like, a big throw pillow behind him. And they do these really huge close-up shots while he's nibbling and eating cheese. It's like a, uh, 
a, a dark dreams from Seinfeld where you'd get those really weird episodes with Newman and uh, Kramer every now and again. It doesn't seem like Stuart <laughs> Gordon. It's it's almost dismissive of his talents a little bit to where if, if his name hadn't been on it and you put a gun to my head and gave me three guesses to figure out who did this, I never once would have said Stuart Gordon. No, I, I think you're right. This The whole series might have been more interesting if they'd mixed up more throw names in, in a hat. Like I I could imagine a dream Masters of Horror series, for example, where Stuart Gordon gives us a screen version of is it called Survivor Type? The Stephen King short story? I think so. Um yes, yes. Yeah. I mean I would I would have loved to see that removed from what Gordon's given us before, but definitely something he could do with the right balance of macabre gore effects and just creepiness. Uh, this is this is him retreading familiar ground, but not in a way that. Um, well, I was going to say not in a way that's any good, but I think he's also hampered by by the resources of the show, in terms of both the casting and you know the the format they have to work with. Any good podcaster probably would have looked up the budget before saying something like I'm about to say, but we all know that I'm not good at what I do in the least bit. But it's something that has uh, really been a question in my mind as I've gone through the series. If all the budgets were either exactly the same or people were allowed to put their own money into it, and if they were the same, it almost seems lazy of certain directors. Like I, I really feel Dance of the Dead was a lazy effort from a ho- Toby Hooper, who we know could do something way better than what was presented. And in the same instance with this, the budget seems to be on screen, but there's a part of this episode where, and it shares qualities with the short story, you learn in the story that the room this student has taken has very weird shapes in it, and he presumes that it might be a way to transport his mind or body to other dimensions. In the Stuart Gordon version, the guy sits down and he has a laptop that has no camera on it. And he points it at the wall and suddenly all these geometrical shapes show up on his laptop. And that's the only mention that possibly something might be weird about the diameters of the room. Even though it's 2005 and you are allowed to believe audiences are a little bit dumber because not everyone had a laptop, come on, there's no fucking camera on it, Stuart. You're you're trying to make us believe the unbelievable, but there's no real push for fright. There's no, I mean, it's not like you need jump scares, but the story starts, he immediately starts having these bad dreams. It's like, even the Rat Man could have been used as a great stinger at the end, but you introduced all the stuff in the beginning of the story, and there's nothing to scare us anymore. It just seems like this prolonged nightmare, and for me, the ending of it, like the last ten minutes, and this goes to be the same with the story, actually, are, are the most interesting. All the stuff that you find out after the events of the story, and that feels like Stuart Gordon. It's got, I mean, it happens to take place in a mental institution, so that sterile sort of feeling that we're all familiar with from something like Reanimator is very present, but it's choppy, it's dry, it's slightly humorous. You've got this over-exaggerated cop character, and it feels finally like, oh, well, we're getting into something, and then the credits roll. <laughs> it just stops. It just it just abruptly ends. And many of them do. That's a fault with almost the entirety of the series is it's like, oh, we hit 51 minutes. This shit's over. Bye. Yeah. I mean, I must admit, I'd forgotten how, for me, how hard it goes in the ending, which I enjoyed. I enjoyed uh, more than I recalled. Uh, felt to me slightly 
Candyman-esque uh, in that regard, but but still not enough to make up for uh, what you so brilliantly described with the Ratman effects and everything <laughs> that comes before there. I mean, you you see him, and it's early CGI in certain shots, and this little tiny rat body, and you can tell it has a human face. But when they decide to really do close-ups of it, it's just terribly obnoxious. It doesn't seem like Stuart. And I, I don't mean to be presumptive, and I hate the fact that on so many of these episodes there's a little bit more negativity than positivity. But not that I, I don't want to, people to hear this that haven't seen it and be like, well, fuck, I'm not going to watch it. Definitely check it out. But it, if anything helps you look at some of those movies from these masters that you might not have liked and you can appreciate them a lot more. I watched Fortress last night. Used to hate that movie, but after watching Dreams in the Witch House, I like Fortress a lot more than I used to. It's not that bad anymore. Fortress is great. I can't believe you used to. <laughs> I, I'm, I don't think I must have watched the whole movie. I just thought, oh, it, it's some drama about these people that go to prison because they have another kid. Nope. That's It's kind of what it's about. Kind of, but not really. And you've got uh, a fantastic cast with that entire movie. Every scene. Tom Towles is fucking insane. He's so jacked and mean in it. He's great. You double build Fortress and Wedlock and you've got a great night in. But never Fortress 2. Don't don't go into Fortress 2. That's not going to be anywhere near as fun. You're going to have your heart crushed a little bit. You do have Christopher Lambert returning. I will oh, never dear. call him Christopher Lambert. It is Lambert. I think it's you know, notable that the person who played uh, Brown Jenkin, Ratman, uh, has only ever done one acting role from what I could find. <laughs> so, so that's even weirder of, of how, who, who is this person in Stuart Gordon's life that he called one day and said, look, I got the perfect job for you. You want to be a Ratman in an hour-long TV show for Showtime? It's You're made to be my, my Ratman. I, I think it was someone who was in the area. It, it feels like it's one of those things where they filmed somewhere that was a lot cheaper to stretch the budget, and he was there. And Stuart Gordon was like, well, yeah, just, just wear the fake fur, put this cloak on, and we'll have you running about for a while. I don't know for sure, but I'm almost certain this had to be a lot sort of set, that that, that house is not some real place out there. It, it must be a back lot. And uh, on that note, I mean, this was... Mick Garris's creation, the Masters of Horror show, and provided with each episode, you had Greg Nicotero and Howard Berger at your fingertips to do amazing. I mean, you've got the B and the N out of K and B. You know you can get something amazing out of these two guys, and this really lacks. Toward the end kind of has a nice gore piece. You, it's mostly CGI, and then you've got some real blood. But I, I am more often than not shocked with each episode of, what the hell? You had Greg Nicotero just hanging out? You didn't didn't put him to work? You didn't ask him to do anything? Run some latex? Do, all right. Just let him smoke some cigarettes all day. That's fine. Despite my uh, bemusement of, of Mick Garris's place at the head of this whole project, I admire the fact that he was doing that and getting these people work, but... Do we know how Mick Garris got to that position? I, I believe it comes all down to the, the dinners that began this, that Mick Garris would host Masters of Horror dinners where he would invite most of the people that ended up becoming directors once a month or so, uh, involved them all in this, this great, massive dinner. And over time, it just became 
a, a party of its own where you had Eli Roth helping host it and just bringing in everyone at his fingertips. I, I believe Anatola Fulci at one point came or might have been Camilla Fulci had come to a dinner. Unfortunately, everyone but George Romero, who is mysteriously lacking and missing from this program, you can't have a, a, a show called Masters of Horror and not have George Romero on it. But unfortunately, they did. And it seems like the show spawned from these dinners of uh, only I can assume all these guys sitting together just talking about horror because that's one thing that can never be taken away from Mick Garris no matter what you think about his movies that guy is the biggest horror fan on the planet and always has been I mean he he even before I think maybe he'd done Critters 2 by this point in time but the making of Videodrome documentary the original one that's all Mick Garris he has always had his heart I think and in the center of the the pole, uh, the center of the pulse of horror sounds like a, a weird. I'm just I'm just putting words together at this point. But from so many people recognize Mick with just Stephen King exclusively, but he, I give him the title of master simply for the amount of love and respect he has for the history of horror, horror films in general, and he has astutely been behind a lot of awareness campaigns, especially, I don't know how that doesn't make sense, but his podcast shines so much light on films and people that never once before experienced them or would have given horror a thought now get really into it because of Mick Garrett. That's why I was curious. I thought the dinners came after, but that makes sense. But you're right. He is uh, a passionate horror fan. He comes over as a lovely guy. In every conversation, and in every interview he conducts, I have started listening to his podcasts. Uh, he's he's really just nice and appreciative of of the work of so many people, and yeah, it's great that he decided to link people together with a chance to present these tales. Um, but I I just think I don't know. It's almost like everyone deserved a little bit bigger bite at the cherry definitely i mean it, it it seems if it wasn't a budgetary thing maybe a time thing or a restraint from showtime but i find that kind of hard to believe because hbo had just ended oz around this time period which was an incredibly graphic show the sopranos also on hbo was incredibly graphic and there's really not much in the masters of horror series that even could compete the wire also very violent deaths, non-stop dramatization, and on-screen violence, sometimes for the sake of violence. Oz had a great deal of rape in it, um, uh, The Sopranos, a lot of misogyny and abusive women. But it's nowhere near as violent as some of the other mass depictions of that same era, so I find it hard to believe that it would be a matter of censorship, but... Like, I, I don't want to accuse any of these guys of being lazy, but a lot of them just seem like, uh it's for TV, who cares? And that's that should ne I feel that should never be an attitude taken toward art in general, but some of these guys we know, especially Stuart Gordon, can do so much better, and, and not one thing until the end of this even feels like it was shot by Stuart Gordon. And I had no clue the soundtrack was Charles Band until I just looked it up. It, it doesn't even feel like a Charles Band score, which is usually very whimsical, um... And haunting, you know, there's a, a a great deal of effort put into something like that. Um, I know on John Carpenter's Cody did the score, and that's a problem I have with cigarette burns. It's doesn't feel like a John Carpenter thing for me. Uh, Toby Hooper's doesn't feel like a Toby Hooper thing for me, and I'm no 
master of the masters, but I've seen a lot of Toby Hooper films and I just don't feel that kind of kinetic energy that you would get with something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But that's kind of a curse of Toby's career is people expecting him to do that over and over and over and over and over and over again. So I'm, I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of incorrect with my thought on that one. I recall Garris uh, speaking about this and, and maybe it was because of the budget that they were supposed to have uh, most or, or possibly all of the creative control. Cause I remember the only issue they had was the infamous uh, Takashi Miki episode. Um, so as far as I'm aware, they were probably given whatever limitations they they had, and then were told you can, you know, go all out. Which that is even more of a bummer that Stuart Gordon was like, "All right, gonna do this. This is what I'm. Yeah. Gonna, Thirty days of this, guys. Let's who's who's ready to shoot this with me?" And he still couldn't get any of his people. And I mean, you don't always expect him to work with with the same people but at the same time he kind of did his entire career you'd at least would get jeffrey combs somewhere as as a two second scene if they could do the money to cgi that rat they could have put jeffrey combs face on it he could have been the rat man and it would have been amazing (laughs) i remember i think combs was supposed to be someone in this but they couldn't do it uh but instead we've got the lead guy who was also in I've got to keep saying Dagon or Dagon because people will listen and know the pronunciation and just be raging at me. So whichever one's correct. Uh, so he's got Ezra Godden here, who was in that film as well. Uh, who, you know, he's he's no Jeffrey Combs, bless him. He's not bad, but he, he is a, a certainly more of a TV actor than anything else. And I'll admit, I have no idea. I would I would say every other time, either Dagon or Dagon. <laughs> Just hope 50-50, at least somebody's going to be appeased. We said it once, right. So that's all that matters. But that's one of the, the glories of Lovecraft itself. And you know, I've, I've mentioned a few times that Dreams in the Witch House doesn't have a Stuart Gordon feel. But this also doesn't really have an H.P. Lovecraft feel to it either, even though it's the source material and he's wearing a freshly printed Miskatonic University t-shirt the entire time so we can never forget that this guy goes to Miskatonic University. It, it Sure, you have the Necronomicon and you can throw that around as much as you want to, but it lacks any of that. Uh, almost paranoia-inducing feeling that you kind of get. Like, I always have a hard time reading Lovecraft because I'll start feeling an intensity as I'm going through it. I'll start feeling almost panic. And that was his style of writing and the cadence that he, he worked in so wonderfully that allowed fear to really creep upon you. And this is the hardest thing to watch if you have a smartphone or a computer nearby. <laughs> you, I will find every reason. To, I went and logged into an email I haven't logged into in like four years while I was watching this. It was like, fuck it, let's clean this out. I'm going to, wow, look at all these Viagra emails and all these weird things. Let's clean it out. Get rid of it right now. And I'd realize I'm doing everything to not pay attention to it. And there's not a lot on screen to pay attention to. We we are introduced to our characters, the character's plight, and then immediately we go into these dream sequences that if you're doing Lovecraft, which he would just describe it as, undescribable colors and shapes flew past me. You got to do something, you know, you got to give us some color. And this is very maudlin greens and browns. It looks, our color palette never changes. We have this witch house, brown, green, kind of uh, necrotic look the entire movie. Where's the shapeless forms and colors and and frightening? We just get Ratman. 
out of all things, I mean, even the uh, the the story has an appearance from I'm I'm gonna say this one wrong Azathoth 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 I think as the the man in black or the black man or whatever that is helping the witch force our character to sign the book and we get admittedly with Stuart Gordon full frontal female nudity but we don't get anything else and I'm fine with that it's all right but it just is modeling seems like a good word to use on this it it just doesn't ever get a feeling of anything it doesn't it doesn't i mean i felt like i could direct this and that's not good that's that's that does that's not a compliment toward me at all the devil he does not thirst for blood he thirsts for souls i'm a grad student a student then i'm gonna need the extra month's rent in advance you all right you won't stop you won't go away this house is infested with rats. I can hear them in the walls. Hey, you put them up to this Mazurwitz? Huh? Is this more of your nonsense? You saw it, the rat. With her face. Well, there. Her human face. That was a dream. No dream. You put the idea in my mind. I went to sleep and I dreamt about it. She is coming for you. Who are you talking about? The witch. Take this. No thanks. It was just a dream. <laughs> no dream. <laughs> this house is evil. Sigh. Your soul is in peril. The rare book room is always locked. How did you get in? She needs a human soul, a man to make the sacrifice, to complete the ritual. They're real. The witch and the rat. You've seen the rat. Oh, Walter, you're scaring me. They want me to do it. Don't hit me. I'll, I'll, I'll call the cops. God, have mercy on your soul. I felt like Tyler could direct this if he was trying to make a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles prequel about Splinter's years as a crack addict. At least one person would have a skateboard. At least one <laughs> yeah. person. I can't help thinking, though, they went to Stuart Gordon and probably said, have you got a Lovecraft tale you want to use for this format? And Stuart Gordon would be like, great, yes, I'll, I'll pick one, I can do it. And maybe he liked this, but Although I can't remember the exact details, it's been a while. I'm surprised that they wouldn't go for something like um, the tales that stick in my mind are The Whisper in the Dark and The Thing on the Doorstep. And from my recollection, they're tales where you can you can stay quite minimal, but you can also take tangents and areas you could expand to make those kind of more satisfying in that format. And the color out of space also could have, well, that's more of a period piece, but trying to update might also be a bit of the problem here that if perhaps Gordon had made this as a a set piece or a period piece in the 30s, you might have had a bit more of a haunting attitude, but 2005 was just so bland. Culture itself was kind of changing from one generation to the next one. It always takes a few years when an era ends for... The, the, the new kind of wave to come through. And it it's I think these were all pre-digital, I believe they're their film. 
and it doesn't help. It <laughs> it doesn't help at all that it it's just now grainy and watching them. I mean, I know I don't believe this was released in the UK whatsoever for its original run. So now you come back 17 years later and these have gotten no attention. They they look like a lost TV era. It's like an old episode of Saint Elsewhere or something from the late 80s. None of them really capture that that pre-digital sharpness. Uh, I always call it the David Fincher look of the early 2000s. And, I mean, this kind of tries to, but it's just so muddy. Everything about the episode loses uh, tangibility. It just feels like it's set on a set piece and everyone showed up for work that day. Yeah, um, I agree. It's it's a shame that we're probably discussing this more with um, what we'd prefer to see and what could have been. But you're absolutely right. This could have been greatly improved by just a a better a better looking style, even with the same elements in place, including Ratman and the story beats. Just having uh just something that isn't so. It all feels like it's painted in shades of brown, and that's not good. And the the overemphasis on the Rat Man is a bit much for me. That that's it. That's our only real spooky villain. We don't get anything else. No ghostly shadows. We have a nude woman in a cloak and a Rat Man. That's the whole anticipation of fear is knowing. Well, at some point, that Rat Man, I guess, is going to eat somebody. And they set it up. You you start figuring out what's going to happen halfway through, even if you've never read the Lovecraft story of rats going to eat the baby, isn't it? But yep. Rat's going to eat a baby. And and it sounds funny, but it it's supposed to be terrifying and upsetting that something like this is about to happen. And when it finally does, you get a, an all right performance. You get somebody really breaking down, but I don't care. There's, <laughs> I'm sorry the baby died and the rat ate it, but you've made this unbelievable for me to feel bad at all for anybody, except maybe the rat. <laughs> that's the only one I seem to care about. Have, have you had a decent kind of re-release schedule for this over your way? Because, yeah, it has stayed quite hard to get a hold of in the UK. Like, the box sets have never gone down in price. And find that aired on different channels. It might be on some random, you know, the horror channel or whatever we might have digitally here sometimes, but not in any easy to find way. And even to this day, uh, over in the United States, there has not been a restoration. There's no Blu-ray. You have the original. You have to go hunt down something from 2005. I I recently found season one in a complete four-disc set, uh, bare bones, no fringe, anything else on it. They claim they're uncut episodes, but so far they have not been any different from the original ones that I had watched and that I had seen. But season two is even the hardest one to find, that it, it seems to be completely out of print. And then technically there's a third season of the show that was called Fear Itself that was run by Mick Garris and, and did the mm. same sort of thing. And that seems to be widely available, but Masters of Horror itself, may, maybe, I don't want to say, but sarcastically, maybe because they're not the best thing, they're being repressed. But most of the people, not well, not most, a good quarter of the people involved in Masters of Horror has unfortunately died. And Stuart Gordon's gone. Toby Hooper's gone. So some of it might be rights ownerships that have ended up making this sort of transparent. But again, you know, I, I hate repeating myself with stuff. Not any of these really feel like 
like they're by the people with their names attached on them. I will give Coscarelli's credit because it has this very dreamlike state to it where it doesn't matter if any of the events happened or not. And that takes us right back to Phantasm of never knowing what we're seeing on screen being real or something like that. But Hooper's was remarkably bad. Just, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I'll ever dislike something as much as Dance of the Dead comparatively in the Masters of Horrors series. I'll watch this three or four more times before I do Dance of the Dead ever again. I, I would gladly watch Dreams in the Witch House, and I could do a commentary on it, anything. But Dance of the Dead's really bad. That's the next episode, by the way. <laughs> Setting up the audience to really enjoy what's coming next. Yeah, I mean, you've got the obvious connection of oh it's Stuart Gordon doing HP Lovecraft but other than that in terms of how you think he would present the material it is similar to other episodes in the series that they don't feel they just don't feel strongly connected to an identified author and that's that's really odd considering the kind of MO of the show uh, which is which is a real shame I think it almost is a weakness that it turned out to be H.P. Lovecraft for Stuart Gordon, that he had delved into, especially the later part of his career, some really unique, deep, upsetting stuff. King of the Ants is a very upsetting movie, but it's also quite beautiful. I'm a big fan of Stuck, uh, just because of the simplicity behind that movie. I love Edmund. I, I think William H. Macy is haunting in it, and he really transcended from body horror to something really physical and something that was was deeply upsetting but all the while thought-provoking. And I guess that's what I, I more or less expected with this and almost would have preferred something either basic one-set piece, like stuck takes place in somebody's garage for the most part of the story while somebody's stuck in a, in a windscreen. So he, he had this great prowess of turning something simple into just absolute fear and... I think just kind of boxing him in, like, well, it's Stuart Gordon, so he's going to do some H.P. Lovecraft. Man, even Stephen King, a Clive Barker short story, anything else would have worked. Maybe a, a more obscure writer from the 90s or the, the late 80s, um, like a splatterpunk story or something like that would have really worked. And it, it just seems like a fault that Lovecraft is what he ended up I mean, it might have been picked for him or he picked it himself, but after so many years, what made his Lovecraft work great was these retranslations, and this one fell. Retranslating it might have been the biggest problem uh, of all with it, that it, it became so lethargic and boring at this point, at least if it was the 30s or even going back to the 1830s or something, we would have had that to roll with, something at least more than just gray and greens and browns. Or considering his... Um his background and what he went back to with Reanimator the Musical, uh, then when I found out all that, I would have loved to see him have a chance to present something as as almost a stage show on screen, you know, go overly theatrical, have the curtains open at the start. This Masters of Horror is a live play where something starts to go wrong behind the scenes and everything turns into real horror. I would have loved to see Stuart Gordon do some theater on film, and this could have been a great chance for that. That almost becomes one of the uh, <laughs> the more fun things about watching the Masters of Horror series. That I, I with 
great love and anticipation watched them every week when they came out it was huge my mom got me showtime just for it to come out and i was enamored with it i was so excited every week to watch these and i i haven't seen them since that original run so now going back over them i find myself fantasizing and sitting as that final theme plays of man what if he could have made this instead and (laughs) i really like wrap my mind into those things and it's not like we don't have beautiful work from Stuart Gordon and it's not like by any means we're trying to insult the guy and I I end up saying this on all these episodes most of the masters that we have discussed are, are, are such huge parts of my heart and make me who I am to this day Don Coscarelli's series Phantasm is my favorite film series of all time and I it means the world to me it is therapeutic it is beautiful i adore it stuart gordon taught me some of the greatest essences of fear when i was a kid and first saw reanimator at like 11 or 12 years old it stood out beyond all means these guys are gods to me but holy shit they it's a proof that the gods are infallible are, are not not infallible rather because they could really make some mistakes and i was joking about fortress earlier but even the the most insane stuff that stuart gordon did robot jocks they're really good though <laughs> they might look like garbage but man comparatively they are beautiful films i would say you know like anything mileage may vary and there could be stuart gordon fans that watch this and find plenty to enjoy but um, I, I share the love from you do and for a lot of the masters for I would just say to people that if they hate this one or um, you know are put off by it then don't be because if this is somehow the first way they stumble onto Stuart Gordon then they have to start working backwards through his many many fine films you got space truckers. That should always be the first place to go for Stuart Gordon. Watch some space truckers. Uh, he was a very, I don't want to say strange man in a bad sense, but as a writer and as an artist, Stuart Gordon was a really, really weird guy, and his filmography, it it's batshit insane. And I think, as I've brought up before, he's always acknowledged as this H.P. Lovecraft guy. And admittedly, he did a great deal of H.P. Lovecraft work but, I mean, even, like, The Pit and the Pendulum has that feeling to it. But there was more, I guess, to the mind of Stuart Gordon that you really get at the end of his career. I mean, some of the stuff at the, the his final films, especially Edmund, are are so brazen and so disturbing. It reminds me a bit of William Friedkin and, and his work with movies like Bug and Killer Joe, where you you aren't a safe member of the audience. You don't know what's going to happen you could be hurt at any time sort of feeling. And it's 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 like a rage, razor edge with Stuart Gordon that it's either going to be Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which he was just the producer of, but still, or something like Dreams in the Witch House. And it's, I mean, I'm not like, I don't want to crap on Dagon or Dagon or something like that, but I'd, I'd never been able to get into some of those films. Um, even Castle Freak, to an extent, I really like it, but at the same time, maybe I've seen it too many times. But on the the list of the greatest films of Stuart Gordon, it tends to be on the downer side with me. And a a lot of it, now that we've talked about it a little bit, I think might be color palette choices and things like that. I just don't like the... 
constant dark grays and like Castle Freak that movie never changes color it's always very dark it's a little bit off-putting it's it's the biggest reason I've never liked Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive the entire movie's red and it annoys the shit out of me it's just bright red like there's a a red gel filter constantly over every single light and it by like 30 minutes into the movie I don't care giant alligator gonna eat some people that's it eaten alive spoiled it for everyone um yeah i mean i I can't follow that spoiling eating alive for everyone if you were one of the millions of moviegoers who were electrified by the unbearable suspense and sheer terror of jaws get ready for eaten alive Created by Toby Hooper, maker of the screen sensation, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Marty Rustin presents a new horror classic, Eaten Alive. Into this house of terror comes a handful of unsuspecting innocents. Hello? What happens to these people in Eaten Alive will give you the most chilling, terrifying 90 minutes you ever spent in a theater. Rustom presents Eden Alive, Mel Ferrer, Carolyn Jones, Stuart Whitman, Neville Brand. Get ready for Eden Alive, a new horror classic. <laughs> Sometimes I just end the show and I don't mean to, and it's just <laughs> I get some like good ending rant going, and it's like, oh well, that's that's the spot. There we go. Because we have, we've done 47 minutes, and I don't know how long we can keep dragging it out because neither of it's not like. You've got two critics doing, oh, it's two thumbs down. We, we we hate this. It is worth investigating, especially if you're into the work of Stuart Gordon and you can see somebody grow and change as an artist. But more often than not, the Masters of Horror series itself is incredibly enjoyable. And as Kevin pointed out, it's fantastic that Mick Garris got these people work and allowed them to get a little bit of a, an up in this era of dead horror. Because if you, you weren't there... The late 90s to the early 2000s was just a a grimace for horror movies. It had become, as it always was, overly commercialized and just boring and bland, and you had really lost a lot of what made things like Lucio Fulci movies and Dario Argento movies, the art behind them. What was so exciting was really lost in commercialization, and you would hope in projects like this to see more art, but, I mean, I, I can never say something is or isn't art, but I do think this is more of a, I don't know, it feels like a college student sort of piece, like a film school Lovecraft piece than anything else, but maybe it was something that Stuart Gordon needed because he went on after this to do some pretty cool stuff, his final films. Well, I will say, I don't know how you feel about the uh, comparison, but I still think this is slightly better and certainly bolder than the adaptation that was, I forget who directed the version for Cabinet of Curiosities. Definitely. That was just the same condensed thing. 
and it, I, I didn't go back to revisit it for this episode. I definitely should have, but from, from my memory of it, it just seemed like that's that's what it was, that it was almost more of a retelling of the Stuart Gordon version than anything else. Well, I remember I had, uh, I didn't rewatch it for this either because we're both great at this in-depth yeah. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> but uh, I, I remember it had a, a different uh, sort of theme centrally to it, though, with the character... Think, trying to find his sister, reconnect with his sister. That was a way to lure him in. And it certainly felt like it just felt like a an okay uh episode with nothing sort of nothing too wild or shocking in it. And I think the ending of this, although this isn't a great Masters of Horror episode, the ending, as I say, it goes further than I remember and is is at least a half decent punchline, uh, if you've lasted through what's come beforehand. Yeah, I, I really love when the detective finally gets the information of of what they found, and not to give too much away because you can just watch it yourself. Everyone out there in audience land, you do get a little bit of a pun, and I love that kind of '40s throwback hackneyed cop guy just in his big long coat. Ah, who will believe it? Nobody cares, and that stuff feels organic and authentic. But it's it's kind of remarkable. At the same time, this premiered in 2005. Edmund also came out in 2005. So that might even be a juxtaposition between this episode and why maybe it's a little bit more lethargic because he was working on something of, of great scale and a lot of emotion in that movie. There's a lot of darkness in the film Edmund, and I would imagine... Being responsible for something like that itself is hard, and and getting that direction to everyone is very hard. And then you go to work for your friend's TV show, and maybe maybe that's why this isn't as good as it could have been because he was really putting a lot into Edmund. Maybe not my favorite, but one of top five favorite Stuart Gordon films. I hope you just title this episode "Masters of Horror." Colon, you should really watch Edmund. Yeah, that's it. That's the <laughs> check it out. Can follow that up with King of the Ants. That that movie, I remember when I saw it for the first time around when it came out. I I was just aghast. Like, what the fuck? This isn't Reanimator. What the fuck? And now, after years of being able to appreciate it, when I watch that movie, it is still what the fuck? <laughs> I'm just aghast. Oh, it's the signed. Oh man, yeah. that's beautiful. I know it's not great for podcasting, but I had to show you my. Yeah, that was one of the discs I took to ask him to kindly sign for me. The uh, audience the, gets yeah. to hear the excitement in my voice, though, because <laughs> that is just so cool. It was King King of the Ant. The animator was the obvious one, but then I had King of the Ants as well. I was like, I'm a big King of the Ants fan. I'll take both. And uh, fortunately for me, he did. Probably my favorite movie ever starring a Baldwin brother. That's that's a fair point. Well, before we get out of here, I want to take a moment to let you talk about your show, your writing, your work, and where everyone can find it, and how they can find Raiders of the Podcast and the writing and work of Kevin Matthews. Well, Raiders of the Podcast has been going for about six, six and a half years now as a weekly podcast. I know we're still 
a young one compared to you, but we've been trying to put the content out there for a while. Uh, the feeds tend to stay within the last sort of few months, uh, but the Raiders of the Podcast blog has everything on there. And as I say, we can point you towards the, the right episodes uh, from what we've covered. I try and do uh, a movie review every day on my own blog, which is foritismansnumber.blogspot.com. And I do that because I have a slight uh, OCD slash uh, positive mental health attitude to keeping busy and keeping writing. So, um, yeah, the more I write, the sort of better I tend to be doing with keeping track of my hours in every day. So that's good. Uh, we're here, there, and everywhere. I like to dot about social media. I'm on Facebook, and uh, Mastodon is the one I've been trying, rather than the many other social media sites at the minute. And, uh, yeah, give us give us a try and give us a wave. Say hello. I've got to really start adopting your methods of PMA. You, you were telling me about it a couple days ago in conversation, and I even wrote down in my journal, I'm going to start ripping Kevin off right at least once a day. So if yeah. you can take something from this episode, it is your great examples of PMA. Write something once a day. Just do it. It's, it's just shut up and write and get it out there. I get asked by people all the time, I want to start a show. How do I do it? I don't know, I'm riddled with anxiety and I dry heaved for about 45 minutes before even doing this and Kevin and I talk almost every single day. You just gotta shut up and do it and if people don't like it, fuck them. Do it for yourself and have some fun with it because your thoughts are valid. All of our thoughts are valid. If you listen to this and went, these guys are absolutely full of shit, write both of us, let us know. We'll read it on our shows. We'll, we'll respond to you. We'll interact with you. And certainly, if you remember on our website... There's www.deathbydvd.com, but we also have a server website, listen to deathbydvd.transistor.fm. We have a people page on there. On our regular website, it's called Who's Who. If you click that, it will take you to every person, every guest that has been on Death by DVD, where you will conveniently be able to find links to Kevin's show, Kevin's writing, and everything else about him. And of course, we'll be posting it on social media the second this episode comes out, so you can let Raiders of the Podcast into your heart and mind, ears, and eyes. Because you have weekly videos, you have a weekly podcast, you write every single day, you are a movie critic machine. You are like a Terminator of getting this stuff out, and it is always the most exciting and exuberant stuff. I love reading you, I love listening to you, I love your videos, I love the movie room, I love sitting down and hearing from Kevin. And I hope all of you that have been listening to do it too, or I'll be in your house before you know it. What do you mean you're where right now? At your house. That's fucking crazy, man. Call me. Dial your number. Go ahead. I told you I was here. How'd you do that? 
ask me. How'd you get inside my house? You invited me. It is not my custom to go where I'm not wanted. Who are you? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Give me back my phone. <laughs> Any final words? Uh, no, you're you're far too kind. Uh, I appreciate it. And yeah, we look forward to people connecting to us. And you're on about PMA. I do try and uh, actually comment a lot about uh, PMA uh, just to be more serious for a moment. I've I've been quite open and honest about uh, depression in the past, and I've now been sort of three and a half years sober. So that's a, an ongoing thing. Uh, I've been enjoying a non-alcoholic cider here with you, though, because it feels wrong not to have a, a drink and enjoy Death by DVD chat. Um, and if anyone is ever after some uh, tips or just a, a bit of conversation, then there as well, because I think someone once said your uh, your mental health is like the weather and you can't change the weather, but you know you can make sure you have an umbrella or a different coat to wear for the worst days and uh, and then look forward to the sunshine again. So I believe in that and hopefully I can hand people umbrellas sometimes. I think you, you certainly do regularly from what I can witness and just from mild conversations that you and I have had back and forth. Great deal of credit to you with all of your work and everything that you do. It's been exceptional having you on the show and I hope I can get you back for a good movie. <laughs> Maybe we can find even another Masters of Horror, but I, I would love to have you back for something <laughs> that we actually enjoyed watching because the difference is so amazing when, when we're both connected and like something. But there's still a great, uh, I think, a, a lot of respect, a lot of passion, a lot of love that people got to hear on this episode for not just Stuart Gordon, but genre work itself. And it's fun. We had fun, and that's what matters, and I hope you guys out there remember that. That's the important thing. If you're not having fun with what you're doing, why are you doing it? Make sure that you and your your positive mental attitude is on point. Listen to the bad brains, man, PMA. You'll learn absolutely everything from that one DC punk band. But that's it. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty again. Thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us. Let Raiders of the Podcast into your heart. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Death by DVD is broadcast from on top of the Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain in any town USA with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building.